Hello there, Vlad here. Welcome to Cat Pick Friday's episode number. I was about to say 11, but no, this is 12. 12 weeks of Cat Pick Fridays. Wow, wow, wow. The numbers just keep going up. Once again, I'm joined by the rich man's rich man. What? I don't know. I didn't plan this joke, but I'm making it now. Richard Morgan, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good, and thank you for having me back for three in a row. And now I'm in 25% of all the Cat Pick Fridays episodes. Whoa. Which whoa. is mad. Yeah, that is. Again, I'm also doing that spontaneously. I hope my maths <laughs> is correct, but I think it is. I think so. 12, <laughs> three out of 12. I think that's how math works. I hope. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a bit slow today because of the reasons we'll mention a bit later. Well, I was playing with a band yesterday and we were recording and it was quite intensive but more on that later fun show today as well first of all we'll dive into rick piato's signature gibson guitar to me that kind of came out of the blue uh i did actually google stuff and apparently like there were some like tips or drops of information a while back already but i found out when most of you probably also find out so when he posted something about the guitar on Instagram. So we'll dive into that first, then we'll talk about something that a viewer asked us, asked us to talk about, and that is basically how to grow your channel, where he has a small channel, he wants to grow it, and also learn how to kind of start working with brands. And we'll talk about that in a bit more detail. Uh, I've obviously had my channel for a few years now rich is now a youtube as well but he also has the brand perspective and i think that should be a fun topic to dive into and in my guitar section we'll talk about a sir standard pro i think that's the official model their model names confuse me every now and then but that has to be the most expensive guitar i've ever owned we'll talk about that we'll answer some of your questions and comments and Oh yeah, we'll talk about that band playing thing as well. I'll explain a bit more in the detail of what happened yesterday and why I'm tired. And I think that's everything that's happening in the show. No, there's also a really, really inspiring video in the Weekend Watch recommendation because we'll talk about a one-handed drama. That has to be one of the most inspirational videos I've seen in a while. And yeah, we'll dive into that as well. But... I think it's time to dive into the big fish, the Rick Beato signature guitar, wouldn't you say? I'd say it's time to do that right now. I think the recent happening intro, recent happenings, multiple happenings, though this week it is actually like just one big happening. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Rick Piero's signature guitar, which is made by Gibson, which I think kind of adds this, I don't know if a weird thing, but it adds its own flavor to the mix. Like him getting a signature guitar, I get it. Him getting it from Gibson, I get it. Uh, but I don't know. What's your initial reaction to this story? Well, I think I heard about it possibly a little bit before you did, not through any industry insider connections or anything like that. But I think Rick had alluded to the guitar in some live streams that he was doing over the previous 
few months. I occasionally watch his live streams. I find them very good. I enjoy his channel. I do watch it when I have time and when I want to learn about theory, about music, etc. And he's also often played his own TV Yellow Gibson Les Paul DC double cutaway yep. with two P90s. And so when I heard that he was going to be doing one, I took it with a grain of salt at first. I wasn't sure how serious it was. And then when this announcement came out and there was the picture of the Pelham Blue one, I was a little bit taken by surprise, but I love the color and I fall into the camp of people who think that it's a great idea. Maybe you disagree, so we can discuss that. <laughs> uh, I don't think I disagree in the sense that he doesn't deserve a signature guitar. We can actually dive into that as well because that's one of the reactions I've seen online. But I don't know. I have mixed feelings about Gibson nowadays. That's the only the only kind of thing I have with this guitar. Like I think it looks amazing. I actually really like the idea of looks like two P90s and like the traditional four Gibson controls plus the pickups which i think i actually really like that that will probably be a super versatile guitar as well but i don't know i have mixed feelings about people having like guitars from gibson because their recent history isn't something that i personally would be proud of i guess people have been taping off their gibson logos on their headstocks and stuff like that but then again yeah I, yeah. yeah i mean obviously gibson has a a unique reputation for how it does its business at the moment and how it has through <laughs> previous years with Henry in charge, for yeah. example. And some people are massive Gibson fans and I think some people hate Gibson. It's either a love it or hate it sort of a yeah. brand at the moment. But I think many people still aspire to own a Gibson. I think the one question that I would have with regards to the, <clears throat> excuse me, with regards to the Rick Beato model would be, should it have been an Epiphone? True, that's a good question. Yeah, because uh, he's like he's openly talked about <coughs> the demographic of like who watches his channel, and he, I think he mentioned that like is it like between 14 and 25, something like that. Like, that's his biggest audience. Like, people under 30 years are actually his biggest audience, and in that sense, I think you bring up a great point because I don't think yeah, a lot of those, I've heard that. Do yeah. Uh, do, do you believe that? I mean, I'm not accusing him of lying or anything like that, but I just, knowing lots of other people who have YouTube channels, who do guitar, who do education, mm. he would be the only one that I know that is catering to such a young audience. Yeah, I have to And say he's also not the youngest himself. He's 58, I think. Yeah. I, I personally would find it very interesting. Like, some somebody should study that, why, why his videos would get that audience <laughs> if that's actually true because i don't i don't know you know there is the possibility that like university professors share his stuff with students possibly yeah that's one angle it could be but if he is like cracking into that audience that none of you guys and the rest of that niche can then more power to him then that's great but yeah i mean if he is doing that that would be another reason for me to go for an epiphone because that's the more affordable brand for me that's the more exciting brand they're doing a lot more kind of thinking outside of the box they're not constrained by having to reproduce old les paul models over and over again every year they can change things up and they have also given signature models to interesting people as well yeah i mean that that guitar can be under like 1500 i'd say 
or like that's probably the price range like 1500 euros so maybe 1500 us I, dollars as well yeah i reckon well in my opinion it should be under 1200 it should be under a thousand because if you'll remember in the last couple of years gibson have had like the special satin finish mm. dc ls pauls that have been like seven eight nine hundred euros and i think even less in dollars so if they can do yeah. that that would be amazing I think that would be the right kind of price range, but yeah, with a signature model, prices always go up. Yeah, and I even think though, and this is an, this is another really important point, which I think is great about it. Rick has said that one hundred percent of all the sales will go to charity. So for that oh. reason alone, that's great. He's not personally going to make any money off it. It's just an amazing marketing idea from the two of them. And as uh, someone who comes from the brand marketing background, I think then everybody wins. Okay, Th that actually brings me on board a, a little bit more. So, okay, I like that. But yeah, I don't know, like... Fizz there are some other artists who do that as well. Like, I remember when I worked for Hughes & Kettner, mm. we had the Tommy Thayer signature duotone. And Tommy from Kiss, obviously, he's not short of a few dollars. He has all the money sure. he could ever need. And all the money from the amp also was going to charities that Tommy himself Hats. worked for and wow. led so yeah hats off that's to the kind him. of thing we often don't hear about but hats off to guys like that who do it yeah nice yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i think i'm starting to like this guitar more now knowing that i think but also like i, I think like if it, it would be an epiphone I, like my guess is that that will sell no matter what they do like from now on so there's probably a bigger profit margin on that one than it would be on Epiphone, though you could sell more of those Epiphones, but then again, maybe restructuring the like facilities overseas somewhere, wherever they are produced, maybe that's not like worth the, like if, if it's like a limited edition, especially like then maybe it's not worth it. Like maybe they did the calculations and decided that maybe like doing it in US actually makes more sense. That's a good point. And I can also imagine that Rick Beato himself, he's a, a big name nowadays, you know, he's done yeah. a lot of production in the real world. He has 2 million subs. And I bet you he would probably personally not have wanted an Epiphone. I'm yeah. sure he wanted a made in USA Gibson with all the trimmings. I'm yeah. Again, guesswork. I have no insider knowledge on this one, but that's what I reckon. Yeah, I think this will be an interesting story to follow. Like, I don't think there were that many like drops of uh let me check if is there like any drops of info when it actually like it's coming out uh no i don't think there's any info no i haven't seen any but he's happy with the prototype now and i guess Seems it'll so. come out later this year maybe um around the time of summer nam perhaps or Could around be. the time of the sweetwater gear fest if that happens which would be late yep. june early july maybe yep yeah I'm interested to see what the price will be because <coughs> in my experience, uh, Gibson's like, well, actually like a lot of the guitars, as soon as you add a second pickup, the price seems to go up quite a bit. I don't know if it's like a manufacturing yeah. thing, maybe like drilling a second hole and doing a second, like, or like a custom pick guard to accompany that second pickup and stuff like that. Maybe it just add, adds up so much cost that feels like it's bringing the price up like a few hundred bucks right away. And I've had like a, which I would still describe as an like affordable Gibson, which is the Gibson Midsound Custom, which is like this 335-ish guitar with two yeah. humbuckers and stuff. And I think that one was 
13 or 1400 might have been 1200 okay. i'm not sure like and obviously the time i had that guitar was 2012 maybe so mm -hmm. nine years ago already wow uh <laughs> yeah so like those prices aren't like comparable with inflation they'd probably be like 15 1600 i don't know actually if they even sell if they sell that guitar anymore or not not sure but interesting i'm not sure if they yeah. do knowing the charity aspect though i think they could ask a bit more for this i'd say they possibly could and think about it as well like he has rick beato over two million yeah. fans subscribers on youtube so if even like one percent were to buy the guitar what's one percent of two million um, that twenty thousand twenty thousand that's a lot yeah. <laughs> okay let's uh, let's say even 0 0.5 percent that would be ten thousand ten thousand of those guitars would be sold but that's yeah. a huge number yeah that's the thing and right? yeah i mean I, the color and the fact that it's got two pickups for me personally would be a big draw like you might be familiar with the fact that i enjoy blue guitars no um, this is the first time we're hearing this yeah I, I love a pelham blue finish with a rosewood board as well i assume it's rosewood not an ebony board on that guitar i've also recently really fallen in love with p90s so for me that guitar sounds like it could be absolutely up my street if the neck is right and it yeah. should be I'm assuming it's not going to be a fat neck or anything. Yeah. So from that perspective, I'll be all in. Uh, what about from your perspective in terms of signature sounds? Because we talked about it previously mm. on the show. Maybe was it last week or the week before? Like you yep. always associate signature artists with a certain model or a certain sound. That's the one part for me where this falls down because I don't associate Rick Beato with any particular tone. Mm. I do associate him with the TV yellow version of this guitar because he often plays it, but he plays so many different things. It's like there's no signature aspect there. Yeah, my like my guess would be that they're aiming for the most wide audience. You can go for within like the Gibson range, both like price wise, but specs wise as well. That would be my guess because like Les Paul guys would probably want to get that. Strat guys might be interested in that because it's very different from Strat or a Tele or anything like that as well. Like, I think like a two pickup P90 guitar sits somewhere in the middle where a lot of people would be interested. Some some people that are usually playing humbuckers and some that are also playing like single coils. I think that falls perfectly in the middle. Like the traditional, is it like a Les Paul Junior with one pickup? Uh, a lot of people probably yeah. will find that a bit too limiting. But like or like they think at least that it's too limiting but this has two pickups so you can get a lot of different sounds and four controls so like that should be a pretty versatile guitar as well my guess it would be that yeah four, kind of, four controls is cool yeah yeah i think they're kind of aiming for that and that's what actually makes it interesting for me as well like i think you make a great point about i i don't know what, what rick piada sounds like i kind of associate him with maybe classic rock or like more like stuff from 80s maybe a bit 90s he seems to be into like grunge stuff a lot and but i don't know he doesn't have like a signature guitar sound as you pointed out i think that's a, like pretty obvious because also like when you're a producer you kind of need to learn to wear a lot of different hats sort of speak so yeah 
there's the metal hat and <laughs> metal hat <laughs> and indie the hat and metal hat. Yeah, so that's a good band name, by the way, if anyone wants to use it. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> he he also has a country hat because true. You know, his the most successful song that I think he was involved with was a number one hit on the country yeah. charts in America, which he co-wrote and produced as well. So in in that sense, there you go. He's done enough to deserve a, a yeah. signature instrument in a way. Yeah, he's done a lot. Yeah. 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 And I mean, the thing is, like, if you start working with Gibson, like you are already like, I actually kind of like that you then have limited options what you can do. And doing like a signature Les Paul wouldn't... I, I don't think that would have been a good idea. Because there's so many signature Les Pauls out there that it's not yeah. really a thing. And then SG... No, it's it's way less popular model. Explorer? No, <laughs> I don't think so. That, ki that kind of wouldn't no. suit, suit him. I think this is like the guitar for him to do if he, he was ever to do a signature guitar, so... Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I mostly do associate him with playing Gibsons. He's always playing his Gibson acoustic when he does yeah. acoustic stuff. He does have an SG that he often plays. He does have a bunch of Les Pauls too. And the really interesting thing is that Gibson have now got him on board as as a signature artist because some of his most popular videos to date on his channel have also been titled, you know, Is Gibson Dead? Where he's been talking with <laughs> Rhett Shaw, for example, and uh, other friends, other guests, and they've really yeah. discussed how Gibson has been going wrong. So for Gibson to get him on board now, that's great for them in that respect. So I think coming back to me as a brand person, a signature instrument, a signature product is a marketing agreement between the artist and the brand. And in this sense, I think everybody is going to win, especially because the profits that will come from these guitars, the money will go to a good cause. I don't know what the charities are, but I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And I think like that's the charity aspect is also smart in the sense it's like uh, I think there will be a lot of people buying this guitar with the thought of like, well, I wouldn't have bought Gibson otherwise, but since the profits are actually going to for charity and I really want that guitar, I'm going to get one. Yeah. Yep. Smart business move. What do you think of people's reaction of like, one of the first comments I remember s seeing about this was, oh, another bloated YouTube star in quotes getting a signature guitar. Like, why don't they give those to real musicians? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing already yeah. because it's su such a stupid argument. Like when we're talking about Rigby. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen that, and there is a lot of talk out there like that. The the reaction to the Rigby thing that I've seen is fifty fifty, pretty mm. much, and a lot of people are saying that. But these days, YouTubers are important. They influence yeah. the decision purchasing. They choose. For people what they're going to buy you know they make decisions for them with videos so in that sense again from a marketing perspective if you've got a signature guitar that rick beato is going to be playing in 50 videos it will sell you know <laughs> and there are other youtubers who have signature guitars who i'm sure sell more than certain signature guitars belonging to real artists who tour or who unfortunately don't at the moment and yeah. have a smaller audience you know i mean there's yeah. a bunch of signature guitars with other brands like with Fender, for example, there's lots of artists who I'm not familiar with at all who are in very niche genres. And I assume that Rick Beato's Les Paul is going to sell more than those, for example. Yep. That's the thing. And, it's also and like, what's a real artist? 
you know? Yeah, that's the question. Like, I think it all comes down to influence. And, like, I think it's, this is something that Rick Piado and some others have addressed in their videos. Like, YouTubers and just social media influencers can make a huge impact. Like, Phil Collins went to Billboard charts with a song that was, like, 30 years old because two guys reacted to that song on their YouTube or TikTok or whatever channel yeah. it was. And, like, that's crazy. And I think it's also, like, really important to have those kind of people because they're introducing the music. Uh, well, Phil Collins' music is, a, like, too old for me to have, like, grown up with that. But, like, they are introducing kids in their 15s or so those other people are introducing that music to them and i think it's important to know your music history like where the artists you might be listening right now like the new artists like where they might have gotten their inspiration from i think that's really important to grow as a musician and i think that's really cool and calling rick piato like bloated youtuber <laughs> doesn't deserve <laughs> it i'd say those people don't know what they're talking about i, I i'd say they haven't really watched Rick's channel. It's really difficult to hate on him, even like you can dislike some of the stuff he he does, but it's really difficult to hate on me on him when you like actually watch his content. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that you know the day of the traditional guitar hero is unfortunately behind us. Th there are people who we associate with some signature guitars, like who we talked about in previous weeks, like Slash and John Petrucci, guys who play them on stage and still command big yeah. audiences and have lots of fans. But mostly that's not the case anymore. And I guess one other final point that I want to mention is that I think it's better giving a guitar to Rick Beato or just to pick another YouTuber who I know has a signature guitar, Rabia Massad, yeah. for example, with Chapman, who are going to play those guitars all the time. And in contrast, let's look at Epiphone, the same company as Gibson then, and talk about Joe Bonamassa, for example, who's had yeah. millions of signature guitars with Epiphones. But do you ever see him playing those on stage? That's nope. another angle to it, you yep. know? I bet you that Rick Beato is going to be playing this signature guitar every single week. Yeah. Because he makes multiple videos a week and it will be used, you know? Yeah. That, that's the thing. Like, it feels like he probably also designed it for himself in the sense like that I want, like, he wants yeah, yeah. to use it. And, like, that's actually something that I've been talking about always. Like, if somebody would, for some reason, offer me a signature guitar, I would probably design something that I really want to use myself. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Like yeah, exactly. You, and choose a brand that you would be happy to play as well. Yeah, that's You true. know, if if you get a signature guitar from Epiphone, but would only use a custom shop Gibson version of that guitar mm. or an old vintage Gibson, then yep. there's kind of not that much point. And I yeah. really respect guitarists like Lee Malia from Bring Me the Horizon who have Epiphone signatures or Matt Heafy from Trivium yeah, and actually point. play them on stage. I think that's great. Yeah, but I think they also spend time with those companies to like figure out what they want and what they like so they can actually use it. And I like that approach a lot. And I actually remember like Matt Heafy going to Epiphone being like a bit of a shock almost when it happened because I didn't expect like... I want to say he was one of the first Epiphone signature artists that I kind of knew of. Well, maybe like Joe Bonam Bonamassa and Slash versions, but like from the metal side because I think I want to say he was with like ESP or LTD before that mm -hmm. uh, but yeah I mean yeah it's interesting but maybe yeah. the, the younger players maybe tend towards stuff like Epiphone 
yeah. and the older players go towards Gibson, and that's all you know because of the brand image, the budget, and how we associate ourselves with said brands. You know. Yep. Exactly. But yeah, I'm interested to follow this story. Like, when it's coming out, what will be people's reactions? Are they doing like a limited run, or are they just making this a production model? Uh, I kind of would like to see this being like a production model in a sense. Like, they would always have a guitar that kind of goes to, like the profits go to charity. But I get a sense it's probably a limited run. That makes it more desirable. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine they would do a limited run for charity, maybe mm. with some special Beato case candy or something. True. Maybe a copy of his book or something in the case or whatever, yeah, or a exactly. signed certificate. Exactly. And if it does really well, why not make it a production model? Yeah. You know, if people want it, then then build it. I think that would be super cool. Mm. And actually, I'm only the guest host of this, but if you guys watching could write in the comments if you think Beato signature models are good or bad. I yeah. think that would be very interesting for both of us to to see. So please do that. Yeah. I, right I, now. Yes, exactly. I still have slightly mixed feelings, but I'm also interested to hear what other people think. I think I can understand both sides, to be honest. But Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, speaking of being a YouTuber, we got a viewer question or like, like a viewer topic that we want to dive into next. So... Uh, this section is wrongly titled Vlad Files because I think Rich is heavily involved <laughs> in this as well. But yeah, let's jump there and discuss on how to grow your YouTube channel and start working with the brands. And yeah, this is something that I've kind of wanted to talk about for a while and it's time to do it now. In this week's Flat Files, as I mentioned, we discuss how to grow a YouTube channel. A friend of the channel, Luis, sent us a question and he has his own channel and he's trying to grow it. First of all, he's asking how to grow your channel. And also, like, he feels he doesn't know how to even start approaching businesses and like how to get into working with other companies. And I thought... I would first start by talking a bit about how I got started and like how I got my first, I don't know, industry connection, I guess. Or like how I got my first job where something was sent to me and I actually ended up doing a demo on it. And the story goes as following. I basically started my channel in April 2017 and actually continued for a while just demoing the gear I already had. Uh, I started with my Orange Rocker 32, the stereo amp. Uh, then I moved on to some of the pedals I've had. Uh, and, well, we talked about GitCon 2017 ye yesterday. Not yesterday, last week. <laughs> and <laughs> days, weeks, who's counting? And, yeah, uh, I actually got some pedals to take with me from that event so i s then continued to make those but again it was kind of me demoing the stuff i had because nobody asked me to demo those pedals or anything like that and that's how it actually went for quite a while i think it took me almost well i'm going to say it took me a year before i got contacted by a company i didn't like uh, intentionally contact anyone i was a small channel and just a few hundred subs at that point and 
The first time I was contacted by someone was new X or Nox, as I called them for a while until people start started complaining <laughs> quite a lot, actually. And yeah, uh, that also started in a way where I actually borrowed a pedal like the new X Cerberus, which is like a multi effects unit from them. I borrowed that from a friend or like I think my friend forgot his pedal board at my place. And I realized that it, it, like, he left it. I sent him a message. Hey, can I do a video on this Cerberus thing? And it looks kind of interesting. I think people might like it. So I did that. And once I published that video, I think a few days later, I got a message from NewX. Hey, Vlad, we really liked your video. And if you're interested, we'd like to send you more stuff to check out. Would you like to do it? And that kind of how the ball started rolling and uh, yeah my experience has been that i first did a lot of different demos to kind of build up the portfolio so when somebody does check your channel uh, you have like things there that they can check out and see like whether your style fits what they want to do or like whether you are like if you're good at your job as well that's what one point though i have to say Four years in, uh, the landscape has changed a bit. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved with YouTube for longer than four years now. Yep. I guess the first time I was involved with a company who had a YouTube channel would have been a company I joined in 2010. So... Mm -hmm. 10 years at least yeah. I've been kind of around this from a, a business sort of a side. I've only had my own channel for a few months and it's exclusively a hobby at this point. No one's paid me to do anything. And I'm also just going through the gear that I own right now, just, you know, showcasing the stuff that I play myself. Um, but I remember when I first started watching YouTube guitar based videos, the only person there was Rob Chapman. Yeah. Like he was, the one guy doing stuff at that point and gradually a few more started to come on the scene Henning Pauly was one who was quite early on in the gear thing yeah and there were others Anderton's were the first store that I remember from Europe anyway there was Pro Guitar Shop in America which is Andy everyone knows Andy who does the pedal demos he was Pro Guitar Shop back in the day yep. And it was a totally different landscape because if you were making videos back then, if Rob Chapman did a video about an orange or about a vintage guitar or whatever he was playing back in the day, then everyone would see it because there weren't very many people making videos about that, you know? So it was a totally different way of looking at stuff. There was no competition for him. There were also far less rules and regulations with YouTube. So it was far less clear, you know, has a brand sent this to me? Am I getting paid to say this? Is my opinion valid? Blah, blah, blah. Yep. And I'm not accusing any of those older creators of ever having misled people or anything like that, but that's just one of the ways that it's changed recently. And there have been videos in the last couple of months from Shane in the blues, for example, and others talking about the transparency of YouTube in 2021 and the relationships between yep. YouTubers and brands, etc. Yeah. What was the question, by the way? I think I've gone uh, off topic. <laughs> I think this is all How related to the today? main, yeah, main exactly. topic. Yeah. So <laughs> let's just keep rolling. Yeah. And I think like, uh, yeah, I have to agree. Like the landscape is completely different now, especially with the pandemic. I feel there's so, so many new channels that started in 2020. 
like March, April 2020. There's so many yeah, new yeah. channels. So uh, from a personal perspective, like I, I'd say I'm still relatively small compared to a lot of the bigger guys. And I think what I'm finding right now is that if you want to grow your channel, uh, rule number one, publish a video every single week if you can. Like that always, always helps. One video per week, like start with that. Consistency is one of the things that seems to be one of the, like, well, obviously your videos need to be good, but in order for the, your videos to be good, the reality is that you need to do a lot of them. The only way to get better at it, unless you have like a video production background, the only way to get better at them is start producing them and start with one video per week if that's reasonable for you and kind of things will start progress from there. That's one. And the other thing is like what I'm noticing right now is it's really easy to try to chase the algorithm or anything like that. And I'm consciously try, trying to stick to make into making like the videos I would first of all like to watch, but I, but those also that I like to make. For example, this is a lot of fun. Like Rich and I have been friends for a while, but this is the first time we're talking like this actively on a weekly basis. And it's actually really cool because like usually it's like we, we send each other Facebook messages every now and then. And then sometimes it takes a while to reply and stuff like that. This is fun. Like I enjoy this a lot. And even though this show isn't getting like insane amount of views right now, it's growing and that's good while I'm also having fun. So that's really important because YouTube isn't my full day job right now. And if you are spending your time on things that you don't find like you feel you, you think you need to do, but you're not having fun, uh, you're kind of burning the candle from both ends. That's a Finnish saying. I think maybe there's a s some similar saying in English as well. But yeah, that's something to in take into account. Like, I think one of the key things is to find the ways to do the videos and the kind of videos you want to do that you're passionate about and that you're having fun doing them every single time. Uh, what was the question again? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think either of us has asked a question at this point, but <laughs> we're just giving our useful tips. And I, I have to agree with what you've yep. said. I think if you can do a video every week, then that's great. If you can't, then do it regularly is what I would say. Don't do two in two weeks and then wait six weeks, but do one every two weeks, for example, if you can. Because I think YouTube is big on regularity. Seems and so. obviously the frequency you do it is important. So if you can do one once a week or twice a week or more, it loves that, you know, because it loves to push the videos to your subscribers. But if you can't do that many, not a problem, just do it regularly. So YouTube knows, okay, in a couple of weeks, we'll get another video from this guy. Yeah. In a couple of weeks, we'll get one more and build it up from there. And the other thing that Vlad said is absolutely key and that's have fun because if you're not enjoying doing it, then there's absolutely no point whatsoever. I'm in the position like Vlad or even slightly different from him that I have full-time jobs outside of YouTube. YouTube is just a hobby for me. So at the moment I'm making one video per week and that's, that's as much as I can do. You know, and my videos are quite a lot of work in editing because I make long videos, I talk a lot, I play quite a lot in my videos. But in terms of production, 
that's another area where I fall down. I have one camera pointing at me most of the time. Sometimes if I'm feeling adventurous, my phone will be looking at a pedal so you can see how I'm twisting the knobs, but I have low production values and I just do what I can manage. Now, if I wanted to turn that into a career, it would probably take quite a long time and quite a lot of work for me to gradually start making more videos, taking it more seriously, looking more at how to get bigger on YouTube in terms of the algorithm and also looking to work with companies. At the moment, like I said, I'm treating it as a hobby. I'm just going through the gear that I own and doing videos about that. So I'm doing videos about distortion pedals that are five years old. You know, this is not something that loads of people are searching for. This is never going to be a massive viral video. And my subscriber count is going up slowly because of that. It's slow, but steady. Now, if I was to change that and I wanted to have the newest products, if I wanted Fender to send me the Acoustasonic, for example, <laughs> or if I wanted to be one of the guys to get the new distortion overdrive fuzz pedal of the week, yeah. then I'd have to get into that kind of group. And that takes a lot of work. I know a lot of these YouTubers personally, and they work extremely hard, some of them. You know, they, a lot of them work a lot harder than people who do normal office jobs. Yep. You know, and a lot of them actually work six or even seven days a week. Some of them like 10 hours a day, seven days a week, which is utter madness. And I think for the vast majority, the monetary reward is not much more than what you would expect. You know, I don't think yep. many of us are getting rich off this guitar YouTube business. Nope. And well, I guess we're what kind was the of, question. Yeah, I think we, like, yeah, let's start with, I think we'll talk about the how to grow the channel part <laughs> we can then dive into the brand part because yeah I, like these are the things that i learned over the past four years and i'm like happy to share them and that's why i kind of started with the whole passion thing because especially now that youtube well it's not that recent even i think that happened in 2018 like when i started my channel in 2017 the only criteria for monetization was 10,000 views which i actually reached fairly fast because I had few videos in the past that actually did pretty well that I released like I think the first one is in 2009 so I got to 10,000 views pretty quickly but then during the time I was getting to a thousand subscribers uh, stuff changed on YouTube and I dropped out from the monetization thing and it took me some months to get there and getting to 2,000 mm -hmm. subscribers could be one viral video but it's so difficult pr to predict those that i wouldn't even try it's the best way to burn yourself out right from the start do what you are really interested in and i can guarantee that there are other people that are interested in the same topic for example home recording is my passion like it took me a while to find my passion like real passion i started by aping <laughs> the p thorn videos basically but that was good because I learned the production side of things, like how to produce that kind of videos. And I still kind of use some parts of those skills in what I do now. But doing that, I also realized that I, I don't enjoy that much sitting down with a pedal and then just twisting the knobs and figuring out all the different sounds I can get from it. I like to take a pedal and put it in the mix and see how it inspires me there. But then again, Rich is really good at demonstrating the pedal, like all the kind of different sounds and music styles so you can play with it. So we're kind of doing the same thing, but not really because we have like our interests are 
interests are slightly in different sections of the same like big topic sort of speak so I, I'd actually say try out few different styles and see what like write some notes after every video you uh, when you've made it write some notes like okay this part was fun this part I hated like I hated sitting in front of the camera and twisting the knobs on the pedal but I really enjoyed when I get to sit without the camera rolling twist the knobs on the pedal record the track and then talk about the track in the video and explain how you got the sounds like there's a big difference in production side of things there and I would probably encourage you to find what you like the most and one way to do it is to copy the kind of styles of other people's videos I think especially when you're starting out that's a good thing to do unless you already know what you want to do that is obviously and yeah those are yeah. those are all good points and I would just add to that just do it just yeah. keep doing it because the only way that you're going to get better and the only way that you're going to find out what you like and what you don't like and what your viewers like and don't like is by doing more and more and I saw a video recently where there were people giving tips on how to grow your YouTube channel and they were all saying they had big channels at this point they were mm. all quite influential but they all said you've got to make at least a hundred crappy videos until you get a good one yep and so for me personally I've got 25 or 30 or something on my own channel so I know I'm a long way away from making a good video but I'm still having fun and I'm still doing it the way I want to do it so yep until you're professional until it's a job don't treat it like one because it's just gonna as Vlad said you'll be burning the candle at both ends which is indeed an English saying and you know you'll you'll start to burn yourself out and if you have a family and if you have a job you'll probably start to see other things suffering as well and I yeah. think no one wants that exactly and like also find friends you can ask for feedback like friends you know uh, will be honest with you but who also won't like completely crush you. I think that's really important. Like friends you trust to be honest, but also like give you feed like feedback that is actually constructive and will help you improve. I, I kind of wish I had done that earlier because looking back at some of my videos, uh, if I had had had, that's how English works, uh, people who would have been honest with me, I would probably have managed to avoid a few of the mistakes quicker like there were some things yeah. i was doing when i was speaking to the camera where i did like a pause where i was thinking or like i i used to do uh, and then remember <laughs> what i was about to say so it took me probably those hundred videos to realize that's what i was doing a lot and you don't notice all of those things and somebody can watch one of your videos and immediately point out hey do you notice that you're doing that all the time so yeah uh find few friends who can help uh, that's a, it can be painful sometimes you can be excited about the video and then somebody points out something that to you uh, like a mistake you've made or like something that you didn't realize you were doing but once you realize it it anno annoys the crap out of you <laughs> that can happen but it helps you to grow and part of the growth process is that it's sometimes really painful <laughs> but you'll thank yourself in the long run and you'll thank your friends as well in the long run so yeah exactly it, it is really important to get constructive feedback and criticism yeah. from other people if you can because 
they will notice things that you don't because when you're making a video it it probably takes you hours you know and you put everything into it you give it your best and you don't notice and you don't view it the same way as other people do even if it's a family member or if it's a close friend yeah. they're looking at it with a different set of eyes they weren't there when you made it they didn't put hours of their time into it they're just watching it just like anybody else would on youtube so when they see something that they think oh that's something you could improve and they tell you yeah. and you didn't notice it then take notice yeah it's something i'm going through right now as well i've asked vlad and many others for feedback on my channel and i know there are things that i need to improve and some things i can improve straight away and i have and there are other things that i can't and it'll take time for me to do but it's all part of that growing process the more you do the more you will improve with that yeah that's a really good point like when you start asking people for feedback it actually will kind of help you to create a longer term plan like you'll know okay at some point i might want to upgrade the camera at some point i might want to get a light here that will help like i started shooting my videos with zero lights so like there are some videos where you can tell that the sun is setting down so the video just gets gradually darker and darker and darker like i have those kind of videos <laughs> i think some of them are still live on the channel so like it will also help you to create a longer term plan and when you you'll be able to see kind of in the future okay if i if i like learn to how to position lights and if i upgrade my phone into like an actual dslr camera that will improve as well and like i think it kind of builds excitement like you'll start seeing the things that you will be able to improve i still have a lot of things that i want to improve but I like I know in my head what are the things that I want to imp like upgrade next and stuff like that. That's exciting because I think I'm doing very decent videos right now, but I also know that I can make them so much better in the future and I think that's kind of exciting. It's part of the process as well. Yeah, exactly. That's all part of the process. And I would also say to anyone who's a beginner looking at this don't worry at the start yeah. about having a good camera or about having, you know, the amazing switching setup that Vlad has, for example. <laughs> That's something you will accumulate over the time as you do it, you know, as you realize you need stuff to make your presentation better, for example. But if you're someone out there with a passion and if you like talking about things, if you have a subject that you really enjoy that you want to tell people about, then shoot it on your phone and it's going to be fine. If yeah. your passion will come across, you know, there's only a few situations where you actually need better gear to do something. Yeah. And that's something you will learn along the way. But if you want to do a channel, start now and you will thank yourself later for that. You'll look back at the old videos as I do and as Vlad does as well and think, wow, what a journey I've been on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one more thing about the tech, I guess, technical side of things. Prioritize audio. Audio is pretty much always more important than video quality. Like if your audio is good, but you are shooting with a webcam, I think this, the whole video can still be enjoyable. Like take a look at Pete Thorne's old videos. I'm pretty sure he's shot his first videos on like a webcam of his laptop or something because they look kind of awful. There's no lights or anything going on. But because he knows the audio st stuff, like you can really clearly tell what he's saying like the audio sounds good and when he's playing the amps they sound good like especially when we're talking about the music industry audio is way more important than video quality if you're t teaching video editing then maybe the video quality is a big factor but yeah i'd say prioritize the audio side of things if you have uh, some sort of camera and you also have a phone 
one way to do it is just placing the phone like outside of the shot but really close to you and use a voice recorder there that already makes a big difference instead of using the audio that you get on your camera that's one way to do it for example yeah that's a great point if if the videos sound good and look not great no problem yeah. but if you record in beautiful 4k and you can't understand a word that you're saying then no one can watch the video so yep great point focus on the audio yeah uh, talking about br like getting to work with brands, you have done both, kind of. Like you represent brands. Yeah. And well, let's ask this uh, this way: If somebody wants to get into working with brands as a brand representative, what would you say they should do? Right. Well, the first thing is, I would say, if you're interested in working with brands make sure before you approach any of the brands that you have what's necessary to to back it up yeah. you know vlad said that he didn't contact any brands at first he wanted to build up his channel he wanted to prove when it came to it that he had the skills that he was good enough that he had the following to make it worthwhile so make sure you do your homework and planning and preparation before you get in touch with brands know who you want to contact make sure that you're thinking about contacting people who are relevant for you. There's no point for me, for example, ringing up Gibson now and saying, hey, can I get that Rick Beato signature guitar for review on my channel with 400 subs? Because they'll just, well, they probably won't even answer, will they? But yeah. that's kind of how you should think about it. Just know your own limitations, know what you're into and focus on brands who are working in that niche as well. And look at brands who are also interested in working with people on YouTube, because not all brands are. I think more and more of them are going on board with the idea that working with YouTubers is a good thing, but it's something that you have to research first. And when you first get in touch with a brand, I would say just go direct and tell them what you want to do. I've worked for three or four different companies now who have worked with YouTubers, and I was responsible for a lot of that. And you know, sometimes I would contact people and sometimes people would contact me out of the blue. And I was always able to, on a one-to-one -one basis, look at what they've done, check out their channels, listen to their ideas and then tell them, okay, that sounds great. We'll send you this, do a demo or whatever, or we'll send you this, tell us what you think and then maybe we'll talk about it. Or, sorry, at the moment, it's not quite the right thing. Yeah. But I think I'm similar to people at many other brands in that I'm happy to take the time. I'm a music fan myself. I'm interested to talk to people and find out what they want to do. And if it's something that will benefit the brand and benefit you, then I'm all for doing that. So that's how I would say to start off with. Mm -hmm. Just write yourself down a list of targets, who you want to work with, get in touch, write a nice email or Facebook message or contact them in whatever way. And don't be a dick when you talk to them and then have realistic expectations when they get back to you. You know, not all brands are going to throw money at you. Not all brands can. It's a very mm. hard time for lots of brands in this industry. And some of them will say, would you be able to just take this product and do a demo of it? You get to keep the product, maybe, maybe not. Mm. And that will be it. Consider that in the early stages of your channel, that might actually help you out as well, even if you don't get paid for it. It's yep. a different thing once you get to the stage of someone who is doing YouTube professionally. You know, if it's a job, they're probably a freelancer. They need to get paid. They need money to live. Yep. And just giving them gear as a brand is not going to help them there because they could sell it afterwards. But in terms of freelance invoicing and taxes and stuff like that, it's that's a no-no. 
But yep. it was Lewis who asked this question, wasn't it? And I think Lewis yeah. is not yet at the stage of where he's doing it in a professional way. I don't think so. So, uh, I, speaking of, of him, actually, like when it comes to audio production, for example, he he's really good. He recently put out an EP which was like re really well mixed, actually good songwriting as well and stuff like that. So, like he's on his way, I'd say. Hi, Louis. I think you're on your way. So, that you're. It's a good thing that you're asking this question. Um, from a YouTuber perspective, I would say. I had a thought that I just lost, but <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I'd say one of the things was that, oh, come on, I'm forgetting. We were talking about approaching brands. Uh, yeah, there are actually very few brands that I approached directly myself, like without having met someone from there. It's all about relationships in that sense. But there are also times where I've worked with someone for several years until we've actually met. And as I mentioned, NewX is one of those companies. They contacted me and we've been working with them on a consistent basis. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I started by demoing my own gear. One thing that I also did was partner with a local guitar store in the sense that they allowed me to borrow anything from their store to demo. And again, that was because I had a personal relationships with people working there and when, like even before I started doing YouTube and when they found out that I was doing YouTube, they were really excited to just help me out because I've been a f customer for many years and stuff like that. And that actually helped me a lot. For example, the way I got to work with Boss was that uh, I had made a demo and actually a fairly critical review of the Boss Nextone and the kind of vintage sounding kind of katana style amp and i didn't actually yeah. praise it i was fairly critical about the amp saying that i don't know who's it for and when i went to nam 2019 i met uh, one of the representatives of the company i was like hey i actually really appreciated you being honest about the product i wasn't like bashing the product just to get the clicks but that's how i got to work with them by making a video for free uh, of a product that I wasn't like really excited about. That's actually a good thing like uh, to keep an eye on. If you get to work with a store, uh, you, you could also talk about the things like, for example, with Boss, when they release a new product, a lot of the times the stores already have that product. That's how they do a lot of product launches, so, like the Katana Mac Mark II, the next stone. They, they announce those launches stores have the products so you can actually like if you get to work with the store you can go to the store and borrow the gear from there and maybe give them a shout out as well we had a thing like when somebody went to that store uh, if they mentioned catpick studios they would get like a coffee and a bun and like maybe like some free gifts as well and it was like we did those kind of things and personal relationships with store people as well like i'm friends with them it's not like just business side of things that helped and yeah yeah all of that is a long way of saying you need to build a portfolio of stuff and the good thing is like when you start doing it with the gear you already yeah. have it allows you like there's no pressure from the company like when i do a paid demo yeah rich will have to reset his camera in a second yeah uh when i do a paid demo i always feel more pressure doing that 
And especially if you're starting out, that might not be a good thing. If you are still figuring out what you like, what's your style, that's not a good thing. When you're demoing your own gear, you can do whatever you want with it. And I think that's a good thing, especially in the beginning. And it helps you build out the portfolio, but also figure out what's your style of doing those things. And yeah, demoing yeah, your own gear helps you with that. You will definitely have to navigate those first brand videos differently because yeah. a lot of brands have no expectations whatsoever in terms of the content that you make. For me, for example, I've always said to people who work with the products that I represent, take it, you're free to do what you want with it. And yeah. they do. And the first time that I see the video is when it gets released. I've, I think maybe a couple of times had someone come to me and say, I'll be criticizing this. And I'm like, okay. And I've known that I would get probably told off by the person in charge of the company for, for letting this happen. But that's for me, not a problem because I, I think that for yeah. YouTubers, their independence as demoers and reviewers is paramount. And I think they have the right, of yeah. course they do, to say whatever they feel about a piece of gear, even if they're getting paid to, to say it, you know, it's the same as a magazine review in that context, yeah. you know, it's an interesting thing when working with YouTubers that you're paying as a brand for demos. It makes it mm. totally different in that context. And that's also something you will have to learn what to do and what the best practices are. I do want to go back and just also talk about something else I was thinking about as Vlad was speaking just then. And that's the idea that, yeah. wait, I've lost my train of thought as well. <laughs> Turning off my camera made me lose my train of thought. What was the last point that you made? Uh, like demoing your own gear helps to build the portfolio, but also learn uh, being professional with. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Being professional, just like this yes. podcast. But that's reminded me of the other thing. Yes. Being professional at all times when you build up to going for asking brands for gear. These days, as we discussed earlier, the landscape on YouTube has changed so much. There are going to be lots of other people also reporting to brands and asking brands for gear. And it's come to a point where brands can be very selective about who they work with. Yeah. And me again, for example, I've worked with lots of smaller brands and we've always had to be very choosy with who we go with. It's like you have a limited budget. You know, as a brand, you can't give yeah. everyone an amp or a pedal or a guitar. You can't pay everyone to do videos because you just don't have that big a marketing budget. It's just not possible. And again, I think that as a YouTuber, especially as a new one, you have to have expectations when you go to a brand. Don't be too annoyed if they say, sorry, we can't afford to work with you at this time. I'm sure that they do want to work with you in most circumstances, but it's just not always possible. Because yeah. budgets. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. And again, it always comes down to personal relationships. Like there's probably people that are as good as you when it comes to doing the videos or demos or whatever you do. But if you're like really nice to work at with, you always deliver. And like you and also like when you talk to the brands, you're realistic about where you are and also you're kind of at least trying to understand it from the brand's perspective as well where you can like you know or like you can explain or like you communicate in a way where you uh kind of 
understand that what you do needs to be valuable for the brand as well like why like they need to have a reason to send you the stuff or even pay you for the gear like you need to be of like you're valuable to them but kind of you like they need to get some uh, something out of it as well and it's not like hey look i i like I can shred on this thing, but if you're not getting the views from the guitar, you're demoing or something like that. It, I don't know. It doesn't really matter that much. Like, needs to be a mutually mutually beneficial relationship. That will, <laughs> that's what I'm going for with this one. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, understanding that helps a lot, and I feel a lot of people, especially like when some companies sometimes share the kind of endorsement deal suggestions they get from bands that's like most of the time that's the reason why those bands are not getting endorsed is the fact that they don't understand the mutually beneficial side of things yeah i've had i've had my fair share of those as well so oh yeah i can imagine as i said at the start of this this segment just plan it all in advance and know what you have to offer and expect that the brand will expect something from your side as well it's a two-way communication, like a two-way yep. deal that you do. Don't just expect to get loads of stuff for free and be able to do exactly whatever you want with it forever. That's that's unfortunately not the reality. There are maybe a couple of brands who seem to just throw products at random YouTubers. And, you know, in some cases, a bunch of people will get something on launch day, a guitar or a pedal or whatever. But those are really the minority and the companies who yeah. do those are also able to approach the very biggest channels so it's like why would they go to someone smaller yeah that's the thing hopefully Luis and others you find this helpful if you got any questions feel free to ask those in the comments and we can get back to this topic like in the next episodes as well i think this is something to explore like I don't think we managed to cover every single thing that like you kind of will have to tackle with on your journey but hopefully that at least helps a little bit and again if you get more questions feel free to ask those in the comments uh, next I think it's time to talk about me playing in the band yesterday and which is kind of the reason why I'm incredibly tired right now <laughs> yeah. wow that is amazing Yay. Wow, so yeah, the random positive thing is that I actually played with some people yesterday, which uh, isn't the first time even this year, but it does still feel weird. Like, as we talked about in last episode, the COVID situation is getting better in Finland right now. We're at like 27% of people vaccinated and stuff like that. So it's moving into the right direction. But after a year of keeping distance from everyone, it still feels weird. And then there are things like, as a singer, it's very difficult to sing through a mask, for example. So we had to, like, all of our singers ended up having their masks off. We took some precautions, like everybody made sure that they hadn't been in contact with a lot of people over the past week or so and stuff like that. But, yeah, it still felt weird. And what I was doing is uh, basically pre-recording the songs for an upcoming service that will actually air on the 2nd of May, so almost two weeks in advance. I still need to mix the whole damn thing because I wanted to mix it myself. 
So that's what's happening. The video side of things uh, happens with the church camera system. So there was a person who was actually changing the angles and stuff. So I don't have to worry about that. I only need to mix the songs and then just sing the audio to those video clips. So that's good. And I ended up using my Fender Acoustasonic Jazz Master within the band context. I think Ooh. Rich, you wanted to ask something about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited to hear how it was. How was it in a band context? It was actually better than I expected in the sense like in my acoustic video, I talk about the fact that I feel it's like a collection of pre-made sounds that sit in the band mix world. And that works to some extent in the studio context, but it works even better in a band context because I was actually using the electric guitar sounds on it, both the kind of clean Fender sound and then the distortion sound. And that was going to be my question. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Was it acoustic or was it electric guitar you were playing with it? And were the electric guitar sounds in the Acoustasonic as good as if you had just taken one of your other electric guitars? I'd say not as good, but maybe 70% there. Like, okay. uh, I, I, because I knew I was mixing the song, I didn't even like bother taking a pedal board with me and like that so i didn't like add any delays and like that i can do that in the post depending on what yeah. song we're going for and because i was also engineering the whole thing so i was like record <laughs> recording the songs and i was one of the band leaders as well and we didn't even like when we came to the set that's when we practiced and then immediately recorded the songs so too many hats to wear at the same time and i tried <laughs> to eliminate one thing by having just the guitar and getting all of the sounds from that one. And I'm actually surprised how well those drive sounds worked. I'm going to send you a clip afterwards just to check check out like how it sounds, but it's actually very decent. And my assumption that it would be good for worship kind of um, came tr to be, okay, is true, something like that, because it worked really well in that context. That's really cool. And I think I've seen a bunch of videos about the Acoustasonics now, but I don't think I've seen anyone using the new ones in this kind of a context. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it holds up. And yeah, it does sound like the use that you've got from it does make it like a kind of this one instrument that you can do many things with. And I don't think anyone is expecting it to be the best sounding electric or the best sounding acoustic, but actually it's a really useful, versatile tool in this context. Yeah, and it was really cool to be able to, for some of the songs, I just switched to an acoustic guitar. And because it has different, like we had a second acoustic guitar play in the band as well. And her acoustic guitar has a, this kind of a bit more mid-range, rounder tone. So mm -hmm. the fact that I had different acoustic guitar sounds available on the Acoustasonic meant that I could go for like a very kind of mid-scooped red note sound. So when I, I'll start mixing those, they already match really well because one is mid-range, yeah. one is scooped, and they together work really well. And then uh, dynamics-wise, like there are a few songs that start really kind of mellow and then build up into these big anthems. And the fact that I could go for the kind of Fender cleanish sound first, and then it's not a pickup switch, but a blend knob. You can go from like clean Fender sound to distorted like rock and roll sound. And actually ended up going like when the sto song started building up, I went 
to the like I turned the knob in the middle so there was a little bit of drive going on but not that much and then for the last parts I then cranked the gain up and had the rock and roll experience if you will and yeah I kind of connect, like I connected with that instrument on a level where it supported what I wanted to kind of have in those songs like it, it worked for me like expression wise is that how you say like yeah absolutely yeah. like yeah the way I wanted stuff to sound in the song like that guitar followed it really well the only thing that I did struggle a little bit with was playing like a lead intro thing like a distorted ah, yeah. intro mm -hmm. guitar thing uh, mine has acoustic guitar strings on it and it, it feels weird to play yeah like that yeah I can understand that but actually it's it's interesting and promising to hear that in the context that you had it it was a really, really useful thing to have, a really good yeah. guitar to use in that context. That's maybe something Fender can push a little bit more in the future. I I don't know if they sent the Acoustasonic to any other guitarists who also do worship stuff, but maybe maybe they should have done and maybe they should do more of a focus yeah. on that in future. Yeah, just to realize the random positive thing, text was hovering over my head for quite a while. <laughs> well done, me. Uh, but yeah, I have to agree and like I might have to do like a follow-up video at some point because one other thing I've been doing with it is is something that our friend Eric taught me. Well, I learned it through his videos. He learned that from someone else. But that is doubling the kind of rock and roll guitar riffs with an acoustic sound and like mixing the acoustics on the background a little bit. And that helps the riffs to kind of stand out. Uh, the fact that Acoustasonic feels more like an electric guitar to play is really good because doubling those acoustic like those guitar riffs on my actual acoustic guitar would be a bit difficult but because it feels like an electric guitar to play and it sounds acoustic is actually really cool i've been checking something that i've used it for and it works really well like use cases i didn't think of before i got it so yeah i might have to do some sort of follow-up on that one yeah, do some more. Do do a vlog as well. I used to really enjoy watching the vlogs that you did, you know, when you went and did shows there and stuff back in the day when it was possible to play shows. Yes. And do vlogs yeah. and have other people. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately yesterday, like, that would have been one too many hats to wear to be able to Yeah, exactly. Happen, you, need a, you need a cameraman so, so, following you around to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to do that. Then it could work, actually. Good. That's a good idea. I can hire someone by buying them ice cream or something that's a, that sounds really weird but yeah i'm in just <laughs> i'll fly tomorrow <laughs> sure chocolate chip so yes chocolate chip cookies and a cup of coffee yeah deal that'll do me good <laughs> but yeah that's what's happened yesterday and i think after shooting this show i'll probably have to rest for the rest of the day because that was a really intensive five hours or so i'm kind of exhausted right now yeah this kind of creative work and writing producing performing and filming and stuff like this it's it's super intense as well i think a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to be a full-time youtuber actually maybe i don't know because i'm not a full-time youtuber but the actual the act of talking into a camera, being on your own, the act of filming all that for yourself and looking after all the production aspects is 
yeah. it's tiring, you know, because think about traditional productional productionals, traditional productions, <laughs> you know, the BBC in the UK, if they shoot a yeah. documentary or an interview or something, there's one person in front of the camera who's doing the interview, but there's also a sound person, there's a camera person, there's a lighting person, there's production assistants, etc., etc. And when that interview will be released, there's people who do the marketing and people who work with the distribution and people who do test screenings for audiences and stuff. If you're a YouTuber, yeah. to go back to Lewis and his question about YouTube, you have to wear all those hats. You have to do all that yourself. So I understand why Vlad needs a nap. Yep. Exactly. And I think this is a great segue. I don't I don't know how this is a great segue, but I just decided this is a great segue into talking about the most expensive guitar I've ever had, which is a Sir guitar. It's it's a perfect segue. Let's dive <laughs> into the perfect segue next. As promised, what well, there's a plane flying outside hopefully it won't bother <laughs> anyone too much uh as i mentioned we're talking about the most expensive guitar i've ever had it's not like absurdly expensive but i'm going to say if you would get one was that a joke it's not absurdly expensive yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry i didn't realize that at first but now that i did it's a killer joke I think, like, since this is your third job interview, like the final one, <laughs> like, yeah, I, th I think you might get in. <laughs> <laughs> Absurdly. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I had a Sir Standard Pro. I think it's called Standard Pro. I don't know if there's, like, a different yeah. kind of Pro as well besides being a Standard Pro. And Can they have a, cl I a classic, this one maybe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah. I bought this from a friend who I think he custom ordered this one because it had a reverse headstock and extra mm -hmm. chunky neck like it was chunky to the point where uh, well the reason why I ended up selling it was that uh, it was the neck was so chunky that I actually ended up hurting my hand a little bit oh. on one of the live sets mm -hmm. uh, I was doing like a lead thing or something and like it was just too much and i like i think i probably it kind of forced me to use too much pressure on my hand left hand to like just fret the notes and that's why i ended up selling it but that was a killer killer sounding guitar hss configuration this i'm not sure what brand produces the bridge but this kind of two-point tremolo thing i think it had jumbo-ish frets and yeah, Sir's own pickups, fairly hot, but like a vintage hot, I'd like to say. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as I mentioned, reverse headstock, but kind of classic looks with a flame maple top. Uh, Spurzel locking tuners, looks like. I'm going to cycle a few of the photos in the video side of things as well. But yeah, great, great guitar. And like, uh, this was at the time where uh sir was the company that that was kind of uh, uh the how how to say it like a lot of people on guitar forums uh were kind of complaining that sir is copying fender now yeah. we're at the point where ibanez az's are the copies of sir that are copies of fenders yeah so we've come a long way i guess yeah we have and now but sir yeah, is accepted universally by everybody 
pretty much it's yeah it, yeah it's funny exactly. how things change yeah yeah but a great guitar expensive guitar uh i don't think i like if i would buy a guitar like completely new guitar i would probably wouldn't like probably haven't had like got this but i got a great discount from a friend and yeah yeah but ultimately uh, if the neck is too big or too small then it's gonna hurt your hands and it's yeah even if the guitar is amazing then it's not worth it i guess which is a shame but yeah a good yeah. thing that you realize that and could sell it on and i guess you didn't lose mm. much or any money from doing that so no i think I, i'm pretty sure i got everything i like got the money back i paid it paid for it so yeah, yeah. but that, that has to be the only time i had a guitar where like it would actually hurt my hands have you had any of those um happen to you i've never owned a guitar which has hurt my hands from being too big I've definitely played necks which are too small and are too big for me. I, I've recently done quite mm. a few Les Paul Jr. type guitars, and very recently I had the vintage V120. And it's a great guitar, but the uh -huh. neck is huge. It's one of the very yeah. biggest that I've ever played. It's bigger than the Harley Benton DC Jr. Fat, which is supposed to be a 59 neck carve. Um, and this vintage guitar has a huge neck. I, I really got into it and enjoyed it, but I could imagine that if I was playing it for a full set length, you know, on a strap, mm. playing two hours or whatever, that it might start to hurt. I don't know. That's probably the second yeah. biggest neck I've ever played. Thomas Blug has an original 56 Les Paul Jr. And that is literally like mm. a, a plank of wood. It's, it's gigantic. Oh. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that would hurt me to have to play. So... And yeah. it, it, it would put me off buying it, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's a topic we could sometimes sometime explore, like uh, what would make us not buy a guitar, like the biggest turn-offs or something like that. that could be a fun topic. Yeah, that's a cool uh, this, this is, Yeah, this is a note for us <laughs> for a future episode <laughs> that we're going to leave in the episode. I think it would be time to dive into questions and comments next. Yep. Questions and comments. The first question is from Andre Rodriguez and he comments on the Studio Pedalboard 2021 build video. Man, I miss the all, un the all analog stuff. You just made me <laughs> some serious gas. <laughs> Great video, Vlad. Keep them coming. First of all, thank you. And I get what you mean. Digital things offer you well they're different to use like they can be great solutions for many things but for me like pedal building a more analog pedal board if you will even though mine also has a bunch of digital things i don't there's just something about it being to able to align the pedals this is something that I talk about in that video is like being able to like space out the pedals properly and like I don't know, that's something that I really, really enjoyed. Just having like a physical board here that is nicely laid out and like there's blinking lights and everything. I just love it. That's good. <laughs> I thought that was like a glitch. I, <laughs> we, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's an interesting point. For me, as someone working in the amp industry and have done now for quite a few years, the analog versus digital conversation is a massive one in itself. It's one that will probably never end until tube amps no longer get produced, which will also probably never be a thing. Mm. But yeah, I agree. I 
have great pieces of gear which are analog. I have pieces of gear which are awesome, which are digital. I enjoy the mix of both. And we're watching them all through YouTube anyway, so it's yeah. all digital at the end of the day. I, I know. It's all digital in the end. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's move on to the next one. Uh, how do you pronounce Eilish Hassett? Sorry for butchering your name, possibly. Hey, I have a question about the HX Storm that is. Uh, do you know if you can use it for vocal effects at the same time as playing the guitar? And the answer is yes, though it doesn't really have like a microphone level input. So that might cause some issues. But technically in HX Storm it has like stereo in. So you could basically run your microphone and then also your guitar and have two separate signal paths in it so you could add like delay and reverb on your vocals and something else on the guitar signal chain though it has fairly limited processing power so that might be an issue but i think technically you could do it i want to say on bigger helixes there might be an xlr input as well so you could actually run like a microphone in there as well but I'm not 100% sure about that. But yeah, my answer is yes, you can do it. I don't know if it will work that well, but if you end up trying, <laughs> please comment and let us know. I'd be interested to like find out how it actually works. I got nothing else yeah. to add to this I one. Mean, yeah, I also have, I have no personal experience of playing a Helix Stomp, but I would tie it into the last question and say that is one example of a piece of digital gear that will do as many things as 500 pieces of analog gear at the same time. So yeah, exactly. That's, that's one of the big advantages of digital, yeah. Yeah. Next question, J.M.E. Uh, Williams. Uh, he's talking about the Harley Benton Dollarhan 80, uh, basically the Harley Benton headless guitar, which I unboxed when I got one and ended up sending it back without doing an actual review of the guitar because they kind of discontinued that model and or like they upgraded the model, fixed some of the issues those had. And I haven't gotten the newer version because I ended, actually ended up asking for the baritone Amaro guitar instead. And yeah, basically he's saying that Ordered one, it has flaws all over the place. Spots are loose, bridge is not grounded, action is high enough to put a pencil under. Bridge design is terrible. You loosen the set screws on the side, then you should be able to spin the brass saddles up and down. Tool was not included, and it's not something that can be bought. Okay. Uh, two of my saddles are seized and will not turn. The manufacturer of the bridge refuses to help. Now I'm battling with Thoman to get help, and that has been like pulling the teeth. I highly recommend skipping this guitar. Uh, do you want to go first? Do I go first? Or this one? Yeah, I mean, that um, that's a very unfortunate case. I don't know who makes the bridge on that guitar, and I don't mm. know the context of where this comment appeared or anything like that, but... If it's a Harley Benton product that you bought from Toman, I know it's annoying and frustrating, but that store has a great returns policy. As soon as you get it, give them a call, sort it out to get it sent back under their yeah. no questions asked 30 days, I think it is. 
guarantee the guitar will go back and you'll either get your money back or you'll get a new one so hopefully yeah. jamie was it can yeah. manage to do that but i've heard a couple of interesting bits of feedback about the dullahan models and mm. now you've just told me that it was discontinued in order to fix some intrinsic flaws with the design yeah. then that kind of makes sense what what's your experience on it did you suffer some of the same issues uh, well uh, mine i think it worked fine but there was like some design things that felt weird for example like accessing the tuners was really difficult it, it was just cumbersome i guess is the word to tune uh, yeah uh, not just the tuners because, are down at the bottom right yeah, the bottom yeah, of the body yeah that's one but like yeah. there were some issues with like i think string spacing or something like that that's something they adjusted and also they can rework the mm. tuners i think uh like build quality wise and sound quality wise that was like a true true metal guitar like a really good sounding one so yeah i i don't know like to me this always feels like well you mentioned the 30-day return policy uh i feel and this is just based on feel like people who have these return issues and such are usually people from us because i think well the rule like the return policy is different for us in europe compared to us because i think toman has like a is okay. there's like a fixed price for shipping or something like that there but it's not a free return i think if you buy okay yeah I, I didn't consider that yeah jamie was in america that would make it a bit different for sure yeah, yeah then it's different like i don't know i'm just guessing um because it's like jme Williams, so it's not like even like I don't know if that's JME is probably not his hers first name. So yeah, not sure. Uh, but also like uh, this, uh, you you've done quite a lot of Harley Bender videos as well, and I, I don't know if you noticed this trend, but it's like any time or most of the time when somebody has a complaint on a Harley Bender guitar, it's not like okay I had this minor issue here and there and then I fixed it. It's like all of the issues they have all of the issues the neck is broken the guitar came in three different parts and i had to glue them together and like <laughs> i'm yeah. over exaggerating obviously but it feels like there's always like all the problems like uh every single harley benton i've ever gotten always <clears throat> excuse me have had the tools and everything so it feels weird that it didn't come with the tool and it it's not a tool that can be bought. I highly doubt that. I haven't see, seen a single guitar in my life where you have a custom tool with for just that guitar and you can't use any other tools. That would be really irresponsible from a brand perspective to create a guitar like that. That would, that would be stupid, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. What What's with the bridge? Is that made by a, an external company? I guess Is it a branded so. one or...? I don't think it's a branded one. It's they just work with some bridge manufacturer. Like I don't know how this person could have been able to search for that. Yeah, yeah. Because I find it difficult to <laughs> figure out. Like I'm not again. I'm not saying that there weren't issues with the guitar. I can totally relate to that. But I find it hard to believe that this person actually went to the bridge manufacturer, and I think that's a no-name bridge. So. Did that person like search yeah, online um, to try to find a company who manufactures the bridge or something? Just looking at the Toman website, I just clicked on the first Dullahan, which is the black one with an ebony mm. fretboard. 
And in the specifications, the bridge is not even mentioned. Oh. It just says black hardware. So I'm pretty sure that that would be a no-name Harley Benton Toman produced part. Yeah. Just looking at it now, a close-up pick. I'm pretty sure that's a, a Harley Benton thing. Yeah, that's that's um, my impression as well. It, it would surprise me very much if Harley Benton had used, you know, like Evertune or Wilkinson on mm. a guitar like this because it's such a sort of unique thing, which I don't think those other brands would provide a bridge that would fit into that guitar. Let's yeah. put it that way. Again, I'm not sure. And if this was a different model which had a name bridge on it, then I stand corrected. But it's like, yeah, with, with yeah. Tobin, with Harley Benton, Unfortunately, that is one of the risks that you take yeah. when you buy the cheapest possible guitar of that type and you have it sent in a box halfway across the world, maybe, maybe mm. to somewhere in Germany for me. As soon as a courier or as soon as a postman takes a box with a guitar into it, into their hands, you're at the mercy of the transport gods, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. Guitars are sensitive things, even sitting in your room you know like mm. if i look at the guitars behind me there some of them never leave this room and they still need a setup twice a year because wood moves and the strings change their tension and the humidity changes now imagine i put all those guitars into a big box and post them to vlad in finland yeah. and you can imagine why things can go wrong things can get dropped etc i'm not making any excuses for this specific guitar or harley benton mm. but i understand why it happens yeah and I, I really hope that jamie was able to resolve this and yeah like mm. i said I, I have heard people talking about dullahans in in this way yeah i have a funny story about the dullahan i actually wanted to buy one it was the last time i went to toman in person that was one of the last times i did a job on the road for hughes and kettner i mm. took the black spirit 200 floor amp was it it was mm. either that or the nin the nano heads no it must have been the floor amp I took that to Toman for Guillaume and Chris mm. to do a video. And unfortunately, I was in contact with someone at Toman the evening before mm. who was then turned away from work the following day because they had been on holiday recently and were in a COVID risk area and hadn't told me the night before. And I showed up at Toman and they were like, you'll never guess what's happened, but unfortunately you can't come into the video studio and i was like uh, oh, damn okay i'll just hang out and wait here i'm quite interested in checking out the dullahan anyway and i might buy one and they were like well there's one other small problem you can't go in the store and i was like oh uh, shit so i basically it. sat outside the canteen at toman you know the tea kitchen yeah. there's a canteen there yeah. i sat out there for about four hours waiting for these guys to shoot a video wondering if i had covid waiting to see what i should do with the hughes and kettner company car waiting to see if i would have to get myself isolated get the car industrially cleaned or anything like that yeah and i hung around for half a day then i drove home which took about four and a half hours and that was not the funnest day of my life and of course i didn't get to buy or even test the dullahan because i didn't want to order one online because i wanted to try it in person mm. because i'd heard stories about qc so uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, sounds like a, a <laughs> story wasn't that funny, but it kind of relates to this. I, I it doesn't. I mean, like, yeah. Unfortunately, that's the reality. Really, reality we've been living in for the past year or so. So, yeah, sucks. And yeah, I think one thing that I've started to mention in my videos is that 
this is kind of the reality of buying a budget-friendly guitar, as you mentioned, in the sense that not only they could be like transportational things and stuff like that, but also one of the way the companies save costs and like, uh, which allows them to sell the guitar for less money is the fact that not all of those guitars make it through QC, meaning that not every guitar gets checked by a person within EU, for example. They ship them from let's say Indonesia, for example, and not like most of them don't actually get through hands of like a Luthier or someone at Thoman, for example, or, uh, you know, some other brands. You can see this from, uh, for example, from Solar Guitars, the Ola England brand, where they do check all of the guitars when they ar arrive in Europe. I think they have some warehouse in Spain and some they do the QC there. And... Those guitars, I'm pretty sure, are produced in the same factory factory like the Harleband and Amarok, for example, is produced at. And both, both guitars are made in Indonesia. But I'm going to say if a guitar goes through quality check in Europe, that immediately adds two, three, four hundred euros to the price. Because first of all, they need space to store them in there like somewhere where they do the QC and then they need the manpower as well to be able to check those. And with Harley Benton, I'm pretty sure not all of the guitars go through that quality control. And yep, it's just the reality of buying an inexpensive guitar. And that's a re like you need to know the risks you're taking when you're getting one, especially if you live in the US and the return policy is different to what we have here, which is like a 30 day, no question asked questions asked free shipping type of thing yeah yeah i mean think about the number of guitars that harley benton produce and sell how many people would they have to have working full-time just to check those guitars yeah and how much would that increase the cost of those guitars i mean you take the risk not having that QC check. And I think probably in 99% of cases, you get a great guitar, you know, mm. in, in one massive shipping crate, there might be a couple of bad examples. And unfortunately, this will have been one that Jamie got. Yeah. Here's another point I would raise, which maybe we can put into a future talk that we have. Mm. You as a YouTuber, Vlad, when you get a Harley Benton guitar, I am willing to bet many euros that you are not getting the same guitar that Jamie would get. Yeah. Because they are spending time making sure that you get a good one because they know you're going to do a demo. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, like, nobody's, nobody's going to officially tell me that. But uh, when uh, those guitars have kind of appeared on my Thoman account, like, wh when we agree, okay, they're going to ship this and this guitar, it appears on my Thoman account. And pretty much every single time, it doesn't ship right away. Like, there's actually a text saying that it's going to a specialist or something like that. And yeah, there you go. That means full, having, full yeah. yeah, now that I know that, uh, I do always mention this in my videos. Like, might probably go through some sort of quality check. It's not like they're perfectly set up or anything and flawless, not, nothing like that. But yeah, they do definitely go through some sort of check up before they're being sent to my place. So yeah, it's something that I've started to mention in my videos that. Uh, you as a consumer might get a different instrument like like there's a stronger chance that you might get a faulty one and that's just the niche of budget-friendly guitars unfortunately 
as I mentioned, mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why they are so affordable. Huge amounts of like huge, huge volumes of those guitars and less QC. That's how it goes. It's a bit weird, the guitar industry, if you think yeah. about it, because if you're buying even like a cheaper Fender or a Squire or an Epiphone, or in fact, even if you're buying an American one, w mm. we expect to have to do work on them to make them fully playable. Imagine if you were buying a car or imagine if you're buying like a new TV or a laptop and they're like, oh yeah, but the screen's not ready. You have to put that on yeah. yourself <laughs> or you have to budget for someone to come and set the laptop up for you before you can start using it. Yeah. It's nonsense, isn't it really? Yeah. I don't know why we accept that in our industry, but it's just the way it is. Yep. That's the thing. But then again, it, I mean, I, I would bet more people have uh, skills in like setting up their guitars, maybe doing like s slight like tweaks and adjustments. And some people might even know how to, you know, file the nut or the fret ends and stuff like that. More people <laughs> probably know how to do that than like s <laughs> attach a screen to your TV or something like that. Yeah, I guess yeah maybe that was a bit of a silly example. No, no, but but yeah. I, I, th I think you're also making a great point. Like we... We're kind of like, okay, this guitar is very budget-friendly. I'm going to get that one, and then I'm going to take it to the luthier that's going to spend three hours on it, and suddenly it costs uh, the same amount that uh, some other guitar would cost that would have those features well done already, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I guess the other thing is, like I mentioned, guitars are so sensitive and yeah. specialist and woods change and strings change. And everybody also likes their guitars differently. Yeah. You know, some people like a high action, some people like a low action, some people like their guitars to play in different ways. And so they are very much personalized, yeah. unlike, for example, televisions, which all require a screen to be attached in order to enjoy a watching experience. Yeah. I know. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of televisions and watching stuff, uh, let's jump to the weekend watch recommendation and uh, wrap up the show next. Next. Now that's a segue. That's a seg that's a real segue. Well done me. I'm learning the segue <laughs> from one thing to another. Good. Let's move on there. Watch it. 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 Video. It's not like you have anything else to do. This week's Weekend Watch is titled One Armed Drummer Plays Duality by Slipknot and uh, Jack Thomas, I don't know, maybe he's a famous drummer. This is the first time I heard of him. Uh, again, I'm recommending the Drumio channel. This is not the first time I'm recommending their channel, but it, it's just really good. And yeah, as the title suggests, he has just one arm, but he's playing Slipknot's Duality. And if you know Slipknot band, they're like this, I don't know, alternative metal something, something very own, like they're doing their own thing. And the drummer at the time, Joey Jordison, I think, uh, who, who was still alive at the time this song was recorded, like the, when the band was recording it, like it's a very, very difficult song to play on the drums and if i didn't have yeah. the video of this guy uh playing the whole song with just one arm i would never know and i I'd consider myself like a, a drummer in the sense that i can hear drums pretty well i've played drums in the past i might play them in the future as well uh, like i can hear when there's something weird happening like if, if I, I thought i would hear that he's a one-hand drummer but no it's freaking amazing. Like, it's so inspiring to watch this guy do it with just one arm. Uh, 
I feel I I have less and less excuses for my failures now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's an amazing video. I'd seen it before as well, and I mm. found it hugely inspirational to hear the story that Jack tells. I don't want to spoil it too much because everyone should watch this video, but he went through tragedy and came back and has now become this sensation. And I think everyone in our part of the music world is familiar with Def Leppard, for example. They mm. had a very famous one-handed drummer who was also, is also an amazing player, but Jack is one of the new generation and he's really turned around a situation in his life where he was at his lowest point. You know, yeah. he literally lost his arm and he was a drummer before and has learned the whole thing again. And he's a, a great player, an inspiration to all of us out there. And yeah, for me as well, with my two hands and my mediocre guitar skills, it does make me think there is something to be said for this, this talent that some people have and Jack has it in spades. So yeah. 100% recommendation from me to watch that video. Yeah, really fun video. Links below in the description, both on YouTube and podcast platforms as well. And yeah, that's a wrap for this week's Cat Pick Fridays episode 12. I'm forgetting the numbers. 12. 12 <laughs> weeks of this stuff. <laughs> This might be one of the most consistent things I've been able to do in life. So well done me, well done us. Uh, yeah, if you get questions or topic ideas as Lewis had in this episode, feel free to comment on YouTube or hit me up on Instagram DMs, for example, at Catpick Studios. Again, links to everything we mentioned here in the description as for Rich's channel as well. Go check it out really cool demos there as well and rich thank you again for joining uh i think it's safe to say you're a permanent figure on this show i think you passed your job interviews and whatever other things a permanent we guest <laughs> permanent guest not a wow. guest i i call you a co-host not a permanent guest okay that, <laughs> i mean well thank you very much i'm honored <laughs> to have passed the the interview i guess yeah, I'm, I enjoy this show. It's nice to talk this kind of stuff on the camera and to also to be talking about what people ask. Because yeah. I feel like, you know, with Lewis, we might have actually helped him to grow his channel a little bit. So yeah. that's pretty cool. I, I hope that as well, because it, it was fun. Like there's so much, Finnish they call that kind of hidden knowledge, I guess. Like uh, mm -hmm. everybody who works in the community knows how certain things need to be done. Or like how to do like and what kind of things to avoid but then uh when a new guy comes in they need to figure it out themselves or then and like if no one kind of helps them to figure those things out like that's called hidden knowledge in finnish like that's a very direct translation maybe there's a different term for that but i'll start problem rambling now thank you so much for watching <laughs> thank you rich for joining the show again and have a great weekend and hit us up with all kinds of questions and comments in the comment section and down below. And subscribe, like, share, merge, links, all kinds of things. And yeah, thank you for watching. I shall see you next time.